politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, independent conservatives to the one and only independent conservative podcast here at CR Podcast, Blaze Media. Great to be back in the house for Friday. I love Fridays as always. I need a good rest, spending some family time over the weekend. And I was going to do a just, you know, a different show today with our guest about the state of crime, criminal justice in America. We sometimes do that on Fridays. And of course, all hell breaks loose overnight. And I decided instead I'm going to tie the two issues together because they really tie together. Under the thesis of the following, you cannot quarantine a cold, but you can quarantine criminals. And I'll explain that a little bit later when we get to crime. But everyone is missing the perspective. We're chasing our tail. We've come full circle. We're running in circles. The more this becomes pervasive and everyone has it, and the only way you know you have it is through testing, not through dead bodies piling up, the more people panic when it shows the opposite. One of the most profound things that has been said on this show early on is when we had Dr. James Todaro. He was one of the leaders pushing hydroxychloroquine. He said viruses, because of microevolutionary theory, really because of God's grace, they are either somewhat rare and hard to transmit and deadly, or they're common like a cold and a flu, but broadly not deadly and not dangerous for for the overwhelming majority of people. And it's because a virus generally wants to survive. God made things with an instinct or a scientific ability to survive for the same reason why, for whatever reason, God wants them to exist in the first place. And in order to grow and spread, you you can't spread from dead bodies. So you need live people. So you can't be that deadly. So if a virus is very deadly, it usually doesn't spread much. So hence, when you had Ebola, I don't know what it's like with modern Western healthcare, but in, in, in Congo, it was like a 50% kill rate. Very, very deadly. But on the other hand, it's like bodily fluid. It's very hard to transmit it. So you could quarantine it. Oh my gosh, someone got it. Whoa, let's get in the hazmat teams. Let's do contact tracing. Okay, you could hold it down. Hence, in 2014, when you had the first African West African outbreak, couple cases seemed to come here to our airports, and you literally counted them on, on your hands. They were single digits, and we're able to quarantine that. But you can't quarantine something that spreads like the cold. So everyone's like, oh my gosh, the President of the United States and the First Lady have COVID. Tested positive. And they're missing the point. Our point, they're like, aha, we got you. The man that doesn't think it's a big deal, he's got it. And like, dude, our point from day one was never that nobody's going to get this. It was the opposite. It's that everyone's going to get it in some way. You might be exposed to it, have immediate robust T-cell immunity, and it bounces off, but everyone's going to be exposed to it. 
okay? Maybe a handful of people could do the Anne Frank-style lockdown and never, you know, leave their house. But, you know, for most people, the world will die if you do that. So you're going to have to come out. Oh, no, we're going to come out with masks. Uh, dude, uh, I think now we've seen they don't work, like, at all. The more we wear a mask, the more it spreads, which I wonder if it actually contributes to the spreading, as the World Health Organization used to warn about before they became political. But that's the point. The White House has so many resources. They're careful. They test everyone. Hope Hicks got it. The president got it. It's not clear he got it from her. Who gave it to who? Could be other reasons. We don't know. If God means for you to get this, you're going to get it. Imagine someone saying, I'm not going to get a cold. This year, I'm not going to get a cold. You could try. And, you know, I mean, if you really kind of isolate yourself, it'll be less likely you'll get it. But A, you you can't assure you're not going to get a cold. And B, only a certain number of people could could live like that. So if you're going to go out and about and you're going to go indoors, you could wear the masks all you want. It is going to spread. And that is not a bad thing. We should have done this from day one. See, the good news is that we ended lockdown. Now we have the mask fascism, but the irony is they don't help. So it's spreading. This should have happened from day one. We would have been done with it. We just kicked the cane down the road. And we dragged out the exposure to danger to immunocompromised people longer than necessary. And we allowed elderly people to atrophy some of them in their final months of their lives and now see their grandkids. But this is the point. Yes, even the president, that they have all the resources to take all the precautions, he still got it. Number one. And number two observation is that he's 74 years old. And, you know, I mean, I guess we maybe have to wait another day or two to see. But whatever he has, it seems like a cold or very mild symptoms. Nothing remarkable compared to what you typically get. I mean, we've seen this where like with the Spanish flu, when people got it, like even though those that didn't die, they got very sick from it. The thing is, most people, it's not just that, you know, they're not hospitalized from this. It's that most people would rather get this than the flu. You know, it's funny, like, you know, we had this whole debate over comparing this to a flu. It's like a flu in the way, or a pandemic flu, the way it spreads. But the truth be told, in terms of severity, for the overwhelming majority of people, including most older people too, it's really not a problem. So to to me, I say, bring it on. Bring on the fight. They want to, like, use this against us. Oh, Trump got it. Like, if anything, it proves our point. Yes, if you're 74 as opposed to someone who's 34, you're more at risk. But even even at 74, it's not like you're going to drop dead from this, you know, like ever. No, overwhelming majority get it asymptomatically, mildly, worst case scenario, like a flu. It's a very small percentage that develop, you know, a severe pneumonia and ARDS and things like that. Eventually, heart and organ conditions where, you know, it really gets very, you know, then it gets very serious. These are the two things 
and and they're two sides of a coin. It is it spreads as pervasively as a cold, and there is nothing you can do to stop it. And number two, therefore, it is broadly not dangerous. There is nothing you can do. That was always our contention, that the denominator was always much larger. It would eventually turn into a coronavirus cold or something similar to it. And again, it's not a rhinovirus. Coronavirus colds can potentially be deadly for people in nursing homes and certain people. But guess what? We get them all the time. Kids get them all the time. If you were to test for the four coronavirus colds, you would never be able to live as a normal society ever again. It, it, it amazes me the more we are proven right and this comes out in the open, the, the more they double down on this. And this person got it and that person got it. Yeah, so what? That, that, that's our point. This is the disgusting nature of our political system of the media. They sold people a false bag of goods that somehow you could avoid getting it, but it's deadly. You better not get it. And it's like, no. You have to break people into the fact that you have to assume you're going to get it, but empower people with the best practices of fortifying your body. That is all we can do. We think in nowadays that we have a solution to everything. We're like God. We could solve anything. We could create any convenience, any technology. We are in the palm of God's hands. There is nothing we can do to stop this. It's broadly not a problem. There are going to be some hospitalizations. There are going to be some people who legitimately die from it overwhelmingly people who are at the end of their life, not just senior, but really at the end of their life. And there is no proven method yet on how to save those people other than developing better treatments, which we are. But I mean, what I mean in terms of just avoiding those people getting it. And the more we actually burn it out with healthier people, by not freaking shutting, like you could imagine, had we had we had the schools open the entire time since March, imagine where we would be in terms of progress to herd immunity right now. By closing down the schools, we leveled the playing field, leveled the likeliness of getting it between vulnerable people and children, which is stupid. We killed more people on all fronts. That is the perspective that the Trump administration and everyone else needs to be putting out now. Now again, to be fair, Trump is, you know, whether you love him or hate him, he's a pretty feisty guy. He's in pretty good health for 74 years old. Not everyone who's 74 is like that. But that's the point I've been making until now that it's really more a health status issue than an age issue. I mean, unless maybe you're in your 90s, but, you know, if you're in your 70s and you're in pretty good condition, you know, you really have a low chance because, again, if you look at 
the comorbidities, you look at the percentage of people over 70 who died that were in nursing homes. If you take a person that is not in a nursing home and especially doesn't have diabetes or a particular, you know, heart condition above the just typical taking blood pressure meds that almost anyone above a certain age does, um, you're really, you know, very unlikely to to have a problem from this. You know, some of them might get a flu, might not be asymptomatic, but gee, I mean, if that's the threshold to panic, then we're done as a as a species. So that's with that. So folks, to really segue into our guest today, I want to tie the two issues together that we wanted to talk about. We just talked about the fact that you cannot quarantine this. We have done everything we can, and it spreads like a cold, like a flu. You could quarantine Ebola. You could quarantine AIDS, things that transmit very um, tediously or you know through limited means. But, I mean, this is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's going to affect everyone. The danger is very heterogeneous. It's only to certain people. But the just infection of SARS-CoV-2 could be anyone. But you know what you can quarantine? I'll tell you what you can quarantine. You could quarantine criminals. The more I study criminal justice, the more I am shocked by a simple principle. And that is most people aren't bad dudes. There is a limited number of people that do bad stuff. They beat people on the street. They rob. They steal. Certainly murder, rape. Um... Even, you know, with the drug trafficking and firearm stuff, they're usually the gangbangers, the bad dudes. They're doing the other stuff. You know, the same guy that's going to walk over to you on the street, all these things we're seeing in New York City now, these like knockouts, these cases of these elderly women being beaten. Um, Usually you look into their record and every damn one of them, every single time you see a heinous event, some, you know, a viral video, a cop shooting, an ambush, Every single one, they are repeat offenders. They are known to law enforcement. And if we would only lock up the small number of people that are prone to be irremediably um, criminal in their behavior, you would solve so much of this. You would stop the spread of the crime. You would flatten the curve, which is really growing exponentially now. So to talk about some of these trends and curves and how we flatten them, and how we've unflattened it since the 90s, especially over the last year, we have with us our resident criminal justice expert, Raphael Manuel. He is Senior Fellow, Deputy Director of Legal Policy at the Manhattan Institute, terrific outlet. Um, he's a contributing editor to City Journal, which is really a very, very thoughtful and informative publication. Raphael, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me back, Daniel. It's my pleasure. It's funny, since the rioting and everything, I've been meaning to get you on every single week. And, you know, we kind of go back into the virus and the Supreme Court and other news. But I wanted to circle back with this. Um, isn't it shocking that since the last time we we spoke, so, you know, we were kind of taking the pulse and seeing the first symptoms of reversing the gains we've made over the last 25 years, the uptick in crime that was already existing in a lot of big cities, even before both the coronavirus jailbreak that began in March and then the obvious, you know, just broad insurrection and and violence related to the rioting. But now this has been blown wide open. 
wide open. In your academic circles, and I know you joust and debate and discuss and have dialogue with people on the other side of this issue, is there any recognition that, dude, like this era of saying that we have ubiquitous low crime and we're locking up too many people and we have an overly unjust system that just like grabs people, is that over with or are they still asserting that? No, no, that is not even close to over with. This oh, is no. still, uh, you know, the animating criticism of uh, a big part of the criminal justice reform movement, particularly uh, the criminal justice reform movement on the American left. Although you do see some of this on the, uh, you know, in the criminal justice movement on, on the American right. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the sort of animating ideas behind this uh, movement are that you know, as you mentioned, people, we are over incarcerating to a significant degree. We are over policing to a significant degree. We are over prosecuting to a significant degree. And so, you know, the, the logical extension of, of those beliefs is that we ought to reverse course, uh, in all three of those areas. And that's exactly what's been going on, uh, for a number of years. I think, you know, when we, when we live through a moment like what we're living through today in a lot of American cities where you're seeing this kind of really sharp uptick in serious and violent crime, uh, things like shootings, homicides, um, aggravated assaults, you know, the tendency is to kind of look for a proximate cause in the recent past. And so, mm. you know, we've had lots of, you know, jail and prison releases uh, related to uh, the, the, the COVID pandemic. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, some of that has been, you know, probably a, a good thing there, you know, to the extent that there are uh, particularly vulnerable uh, uh you know, prisoners who are of especially low risk, um, you know, it probably does make sense uh, uh, to, to get them out of some of these facilities. Um, I've actually written about this particular issue, um, making the point that, you know, one of the other animating principles of the criminal justice reform movement, particularly on the right, is this idea that we can realize large public savings from decarceration, right? We, we can close prisons and jails and spend less on incarceration and, and so, you know, sort of improve the fiscal house uh, of, of our, our, our various states. One of the problems with that is, though, as, as I think the COVID crisis has sort of revealed, is that as you close jails, what you're doing is you're reducing carceral capacity, which means that, you know, for the remaining population, um, you're still going to have to deal with a lot of the problems that come with overcrowding. And one of the reasons why yeah. in New York City and in New York State, you know, jurisdictions that have decarcerated at the state and local level by, you know, upwards of you know 30 to 50 percent. Um, in, in certain facilities are still seeing, uh, you know, a, a sort of a situation where it's impossible to social distance prisoners. The reason for that is, is because at the same time that they've been decarcerating, they've also been reducing carceral capacity by about 30%. And so, you know, I, I think we're seeing now what some of the benefits are of maintaining carceral capacity, um, you know, and, and, and there's a lot that we can go into there. But, yeah. but the reality is, is that, this recent trend of decarceration is really only the tip of the iceberg for years. Um, you know, we have been sort of working to unwind the progress that we've made in criminal justice. Yes. We've seen this through the so-called progressive prosecutor movement, um, various depolicing uh, initiatives, you know, and, and, and New York has been, been home to a lot of this. And I think we're, we're sort of reaping what we've sown uh, <laughs> right now. And I think that's what a lot of people are missing. Like a lot of my colleagues in this business, they're obsessed with BLM and Antifa, and there's what to talk about. But what I always say is if you 
I've watched this very carefully, and I'm sure you've seen this. You look at the specific, not just the guys kind of like yelling and shouting, but the specific incidents of guys like throwing a brick at a cop, the guy who shot the person in Portland, the one that really like robs and burns a store. And every one of them, I look at their records, and it's the and they were recently over the last year or two put on probation for something that clearly a, a generation ago they would have been locked up. I'm just looking here right now. The man charged in the ambush of the LA cops, that big incident that took place earlier this or in September, had a, a carjacking yeah. just just a few weeks prior. Um, I'm looking at 46 year old man in Duluth. Um, was sentenced to supervised probation this week for two sexual assault cases. Um, And I'm looking now, where is this? He pled guilty to first degree and third degree criminal sexual conduct. If you plead to first degree, I mean, that's pretty impressive. And he got, it is 16 years that he'll get if he violates the probation, but he's getting probation. He's not getting jail. We're getting, we're not talking about marijuana. We're not talking about drugs. I'm looking here, your home city. So there's this whole rash of beating up women and raping, attempting to rape a woman, like these knockouts, these there's like, I, I, I can't even keep track of all these elderly women that are knocked over. This just happened. New York post from yesterday, 20 year old man with lengthy arrest history was released without bail on an assault and robbery case only to mug a 93 year old woman, lower Manhattan a month later. Um, he reportedly knocked the woman to the ground, stole $30. He was already awaiting trial. Now you'd say, oh, well, it was like, you know, he jumped the turnstile or something. No, no, no. He was awaiting trial on an earlier robbery charge in August. Um, in that case, Tucker is accused of grabbing a 32-year-old man, taking his phone, um, and he was released without bail. And... Then he was out to go and do this. He had 22 prior arrests since 2009, including burglary, robbery, assault, obviously fair beating. Five of case, the cases were sealed, so we don't know what's in them. Rafa, I am finding this is the rule, not the exception. So, the, like, I, I spent like five years debating my opponents over drugs. Like, no, you don't understand. These are usually gang members. They're also doing other things. But forget about drugs. Uh, let's ignore that. I am finding straight up repeat violent offenders are not spending any time in jail or prison. Well, they're not spending nearly as much time as they should. That's for sure. I mean, what people don't understand is that prison is still a relatively rare sanction. Um, You know, the Justice Department has been tracking uh, the, the outcomes of state felony convictions for quite some time since the year 2000. Between 2000 and 2009, uh, Justice Department reports has shown that only about 40 percent of state felony convictions result in a post-conviction prison sentence, which means that the majority of state felony convicts are not going to prison. Um, You know, they may spend some time in in pretrial incarceration, in pretrial detention. That's, you know, that's certainly true. Um, But for the vast majority of of these folks, they're not seeing the inside of the prison. And so, you know, when when you read about some of these really heinous uh, and violent offenses, it's it's very rarely a surprise when you learn who the culprit is, which is to say that the culprit is almost always someone who has an extensive criminal history. Right. I mean, if you look at Chicago, um, you know, that's a city that's been struggling with elevated rates of serious violent crime for quite some time. They're in the middle of really an unprecedented 
spike. I don't think they've seen a spike this big, uh, you know, ever. Um, it's, it, you know, it's on track to surpass the spike of 2016. But in, in 2016, if you looked at uh, people uh, arrested or convicted of homicides or shootings in the city of Chicago, the average number of prior arrests for those perps were 12. 12 mm. prior arrests, right? So, you know, the, the reality is, is that the people who are driving a lot of our crime, I think you hit, hit the nail on the head in your opening, uh, these are, are, are relatively small swath of our, of our society that is, that is perpetrating the worst offenses. And if we were to just concentrate our carceral and policing resources on these people and on the places in which they yes. commit most of these crimes, we would actually see a huge payoff, right? And this is another aspect that's kind of ignored about this, but the sort of geographical concentration of crime is really important, right? I mean, this is something that's been documented in the literature for quite some time, uh, for example, example, yep. uh, in, in Minneapolis, a study in 1989 found that only 3% of the addresses in that city produced 50% of all the calls to police. Yep. Um, a criminologist named David Weisberg found uh, in, a, in an extensive study in the city of uh, Seattle that about 4.5% of intersections in that city produced about 40% uh, of all of of all crime that mm. you know a lot of people will sort of ref, uh, reflexively talk about the over policing of certain communities but we have <laughs> to contend with the realities of where crime is happening right and, and, and where they have, get the 911 uh, you know, calls that's where they get the 911 calls exactly so it's it's not meaning it's not just the proactive right am i correct Rafa? it's not just the proactive policing like yeah these bullies are going on patrol which look it actually saves lives but even if you take that out like a lot of these notorious stories we've dealt with recently with people complaining and you know the rioting and everything a lot of them or all of them really that i could think of they were called onto the scene it wasn't with floyd or the georgia the georgia case like that they, um, you know, were just kind of like patrolling and they caught someone. Oh, you look black. Let me just go and, you know, kind of uh, harass you. They got called down by a, a victim or a witness who usually is black. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, a, a lot of a lot of police activity is driven by reports, even proactive, you know, patrolling is driven by past reports. Right. I mean, police aren't just randomly patrolling various parts of cities, you know, what they're doing is they're they're using the data that they have at their fingertips to inform their deployments, right? It would not make sense. And I I, I don't think that that um you know activists would take kindly to, for example, uh, a very wealthy low crime community having the same amount of police resources dedicated to it as compared to, you know, a, a, a very low income, high crime community. You know, I'm old enough to remember that, you know, one of the, the sort of main uh, arguments in, in the you know, main, main arrow in the quiver of arguments that police were racist was that, you know, police were not responsive enough yeah. uh, to crime in black communities. Um, and, and so, you know, it's somewhat of a double edged sword for cops, but I, I do think that, that, you know, you know, I, I think the health analogy is a really good one, because if you consider crime to be a public health problem, to be a disease, right, certainly uh, the geographical concentration of that disease 
um, certainly the concentration of that disease among so-called vulnerable populations would inform how we went about treating it. Mm. And, um, you know, what we need to do is sort of get comfortable with the idea that there are certain people who are incorrigible offenders who are not likely to respond uh, positively to certain kinds of incentives and incapacitate them and incapacitate them for meaningful amounts of time. We have this idea that people are spending decades upon decades in prison and, you know, certainly, uh, you know, people who are convicted of murder are doing serious time. But for the most part, the median uh, prison sentence in terms of time served is only about 16 months. Um, this is not a particularly long time. It's less than a year and a half. I've been shocked about rape the more I study that. I think some of it is often because it's hard to land first degree often. So once you get it to second or third, it really drops it. But I am shocked you know, in some of these really pretty bad cases, they only serve a very short period of time. Right, right. I mean, you know, even even 20% of those in prison for murder, nearly 60% of those in prison for rape or sexual assault serve less than five years mm. of the total sentence handed down, right? I think the public's imagination is shaped by the length of the sentence that is handed down. And what people don't really understand um, is that people don't ever serve <laughs> that full sentence, right? Most people are, are getting time credits and, and are being paroled much earlier uh, than what the high end of their sentence uh, would allow. And I think that we would see significant crime reductions from increasing uh, those sentences on high rate, uh, violent, yep. serious violent offenders who pose a real risk to the public. Uh, you know, there's there's quite a bit of evidence that showed that, you know, incarceration during the mechanism of incapacitation played a really significant role uh, in the crime decline. You know, upwards of uh, it's responsible for upwards of 25 percent of the crime decline of the 1990s. That's not peanuts. Um, and so I think we sort of reverse course uh, to the detriment of the most vulnerable communities in the United States. No, absolutely. What you sound, what it sounds like you're describing here is not to get too cute with my analogy, but I really think crime is more like Ebola than the flu in the sense that, you know, the flu will eventually kind of evenly distribute itself elsewhere, you know, everywhere. And we're really seeing this with coronavirus, you know, even the places it didn't go. Now it's, you know, Wisconsin, the Dakotas, Wyoming, it didn't go there. Now it's going there. Whereas crime doesn't work like that. It's, it's defined geographically. It's defined really to certain career criminals that are prone to commit most of the crime. Um, I forget, I once saw a study at a Switzerland and they said something like, if you had a legitimate three strikes and you're outlaw um, for people, third time offenders above a certain level, it was something like you would prevent 50 to 60% of the crime because um, it's all a small number of people that do it. But what scares me is that our opponents in this debate are double dipping. So like they've quietly been doing this for many years and then they act as if it's like 2005 now, like we're at the peak of incarceration and the, the, the nadir or the low level of crime when really it's flipped. So I look at, I want to get your take on this. Um, we always have a lagging indicator. So like BJS's latest data is 2018, but as you know, I mean, the jailbreak has really accelerated since then. The bail break, the jailbreak, the um, certainly the COVID stuff, not just the 100,000 or so that have been released, according to UCLA, but God knows how many people initially, and I see it here in Maryland, 
are never even incarcerated to begin with on the front end now because they're like, well, we can't put more people in. And I'm talking about serious dudes, sex offenders we had here in Baltimore weren't locked up. But according to BJS, okay, 2018, most people don't know this. The combined state and federal imprisonment rate was the lowest since 1996. The imprisonment rate fell 15% from 08 to 2018. From 2018 to from 2008 to uh, to 18, it dropped even more among blacks. So 28% among blacks, 21% among Hispanics, only 13% among white residents. And listen to this: in 2018, the imprisonment rate of black residents was the lowest since 1989. What am I missing here? Well, no, I mean, that's exactly, you know, what, what the data are showing. And, you know, again, look, I, I think there is some, there is a, a reason to consider lower levels of incarceration to be a public good, right? To the extent that those lower levels of incarceration reflect real declines in crime. And there's certainly some of that, right? Part of the reason that our prison populations have been going down is because over the course of, you know, the early 2000s and 1990s, crime, crime has gone down, yep. right? What we don't want to do is to artificially decarcerate for its own sake as yes. if decarceration yes. is a public policy good unto itself. When we do that, when we get into that realm, um, we start to really risk the health of these communities. And, you know, part of the problem with this is, as you mentioned, we have lagging indicators. So we can, you know, we've seen this in New York. New York has been decarcerating rather steadily for some time. Um, and crime hasn't really jumped until recently. And so for a long time, people would say, well, look, New York has been decarcerating. Um, and, you know, the sky hasn't fallen. Therefore, um, you know, we can conclude that decarceration isn't particularly important when it comes to keeping crime at bay. But the reality is, is that particularly in a city like New York, where you've made so much progress over time, that progress doesn't erode overnight. And the more progress you've made in a jurisdiction, the harder it is going to be and the longer it is going to take uh, for things to degrade to the point that a crime spike uh, becomes possible. But the mere fact uh, that you have some of that wiggle room doesn't mean you ought to jeopardize those gains. Um, and, and I think that's, that's exactly what we're seeing is that, you know, for, uh, for some time in a lot of these jurisdictions, they've gotten away with these things because the response and the crime rate has not been immediate. Um, but there's no reason that we should have necessarily expected that to be the case. And I fear that now that, you know, crime is picking up, people have convinced themselves that there's really no tie to some of these carceration policies. And, uh, you know, I think we're, we're setting ourselves up for a, a prolonged period of increasing crime in a lot of American cities. Yes, yes. And, and, and that's why I wanted to kind of conclude with one of the things that, look, I'm a very data-driven guy. And I, I said to my audience last year, because I was talking about, you know, my concerns all last year, long before this wave of insurrection with with started with Floyd and, you know, the whole Antifa and BLM stuff that just just to begin with, just because the jailbreak, the, you know, certainly New York, we were covering last year when their policies already started to be implemented late last year. And we saw the influence. We even saw it before that bail law was um, implemented just because of some other policies. And I said, look, if the 2019 FBI data doesn't show um, an increase in crime, I'll eat my hat. 
And lo and behold, it came out and, and did show, obviously, homicides went up, but every other crime level, you know, crime category went down. You know, again, I'm a data guy, but just tell me, something doesn't sit right with that. It just, I, I know it's not uniform, and I know there are some places that still are experiencing the continuation of the 25-year-old downward trend, but those numbers just don't smell right to me. Well, what do you think? I mean, there's certainly a possibility. I mean, we've seen in New York, for example, a very similar trend where homicides, shootings, aggravated assaults have all gone up, but things like street robberies, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, commercial uh, burglaries um, seem to be going down. Um, part of the, and I think burglaries are actually now up at this point, but earlier in the year they were down. Yeah, because everyone's home. Like, I mean, yeah. Larceny go down. Right, yeah. Well, this is the thing, right? I mean, so you have to understand some of the principles of environmental criminology to really understand why this sort of trend might be taking place. If during a quarantine you have fewer people walking the street, that means fewer potential robbery targets. Um, so you would expect a decline in robbery because there's just a decline in opportunities. Um, you would expect a decline in the robberies of commercial establishments because they're empty. You might expect an increase in the burglaries of certain commercial establishments. You might expect an increase in burglaries in neighborhoods in cities like New York, in which residents tend to have other properties in other states that they go mm. to during the summer. So, you know, the higher end communities in New York tend to have lots of residents go to the Hamptons, for example, uh, you know, for the summer or on the weekends or down to Florida, et cetera. And so, you know, those spaces become more vulnerable to that kind of crime. But I think what we're seeing is in part some of the effects of the pandemic where in these higher crime neighborhoods, um, you haven't really seen much change. You've still got lots of people on the street during the summer. Um, you've got, you know, these protests, uh, sort of driving police resources into, you know, uh, other parts of, of, of those cities that create the conditions uh, for these crime upticks. You've also got the pandemic related uh, impact on courts. It's harder to administer criminal courts, mm. which means that people may be out uh, pen with charges pending for much longer, which means they're on the street for much longer, which means yes. they'll have more opportunities to commit certain kinds of more serious crime and settle scores and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I do think we have to take the pandemic into account. And I think when you do that, it does sort of explain some of why some of these other crime categories may not be tracking homicides and shootings, but homicides and shootings really ought to be what we're worried most yes. about. Yes. The most serious kinds of crimes that we're seeing, they have, you know, really lasting impacts on their surrounding communities and they can have kind of a contagion effect, right? Especially with respect to these shootings that are motivated by revenge. Um, you know, it, it, it basically starts a volley where you have, you know, one killing in response to another, which drives another response and so on. Um, and then the gang and, and activity. Really get out of hand. And, and then gang activity, which the FBI has said for years is the 800 pound gorilla in the room. I mean, that's responsible for some as a majority of all crime committed um, in a given area. So, you know, usually when you have those mass shootings and everything, it's gang warfare. By the way, I'm just looking right now. What you're saying is very is brilliant with the um, the baseline expectation of crime should go down. A classic exp uh, example of this is the New York subways. So NYPD has data out. And I maybe I saw this in, in the New York Daily News that basically um, if you look at the numbers, 
ridership on the subways is down 75%, right? It's one of the primary areas people right. fear of getting the virus. So you, it's down 75%. It's remarkable. I mean, it's historic. It's, it's, it's unprecedented. But even when you factor in the reduced population, you have really a doubling of criminal incidents per capita because they say that subway arrests fell by 80%, summons dropped by 95% in August. So they found that crime technically is really going up on the subways, and I think we're all seeing this, right? Oh, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, again, this is the other thing, too. It's like, yes, there are reduced opportunities for certain crimes, um, but that should trouble us even more given the raw numbers because if you if you break it down to a rate, uh, to a per capita rate, you'll see actually, you know, some of these crime areas are, some of these categories are actually going up um, and and counter to what you would expect. So it is, it is extremely troubling. I think the New York City subway system is a really good example of that. I think you're absolutely right to say that gangs are the 800 uh, pound gorilla in the room. I mean, in New York City, for example, um, gangs and crews in particular account for between 30 and 40% of homicides, between 40 and 49% of the city shootings. Um, many of which are concentrated in and around public housing projects. Um, so, you know, nearly 20% of the city's shootings uh, occur um, uh, in, in, in New York City housing projects. So, again, just another example of the concentration of a lot of these crimes within those populations yep. and places. Um, but, yeah, you know, the other thing, too, with the subways to keep in mind is that, you know, the the, the Decrease in ridership, the decrease in eyes on the street um, could actually be driving crime in some ways because, mm. you know, one of the things that, you know, population density is associated positively with crime up to a point, which is to say that, you know, you need enough population density to help get you a certain level of anonymity, right? Uh, to increase your chances of being mixing into the crowd yeah. and not being seen. Uh, but beyond a certain point, it actually becomes a barrier. Uh, to committing certain kinds of crimes, because if you have a lot of eyes around, you've got a lot of witnesses, you've got a lot of people who can potentially jump in and help. And so, you know, the decreased ridership has left certain people more vulnerable to certain kinds of offenses. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of that, too. It is a very complicated and convoluted um, you know, situation, but I don't think we necessarily have to dig down to every answer in order to understand that incapacitating criminals that, uh, yes. you know, is, is going to help keep this problem under control, that proactively policing high crime spots, uh, is going to help keep these problems under control. And unfortunately, both of those tactics have become politically unpalatable in a lot of American cities. And that's why we're where we're at today. So, so that's what really bothers me is just the fact that we have decided no mas. We are not spending another right. penny on the system. And the problem I have with that is that – so I focused a lot you know, on, on the back end, the sentencing, and how to me I was appalled how light the sentencing was. But what I found recently that really I, ne I never realized what a problem it is is the pretrial issue that – and again, I'm not talking about the low-level people. I'm talking about the most appalling people, gang members that have tons of arrests. And what I'm finding is they're out for so long now. And those are the ones that seem to be committing the crimes. Don't we need more resources into the court system to go and expedite the process? Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, one of the reasons that bail reform became such an issue uh, for criminal justice reformers uh, is really rooted in the fact 
that people stood to spend significant periods of time in pretrial detention if they were unable to make cash bail. But one of the reasons that they were spending so much time in pretrial detention is because of the length of time it takes mm. us to process a case from beginning to end. And that is purely a function of resources, right? And so this is why I'm somewhat skeptical of the animating principle of, of criminal justice reformers on the right in particular being, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of mission towards fiscal savings. Um, the reality is, is that in a lot of Criminals ways, our criminal vote. justice system is underfunded. Exactly. Yep. Uh, in a lot of ways, our criminal justice system is underfunded. In a lot of ways, I think we would alleviate some of the problems that animate both the right and the left um, by by more adequately yep. funding that system across the board. And so, uh, you know, but unfortunately, things like defund the police <laughs> is is uh, getting a lot more attention than than the opposite. Um, than the opposite. So, uh, or, 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 what we do about that politically is. Exactly, or even not just the police, but 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 the court system. Like that, you, you you know when 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 you have a population growth, everyone says, okay, we need more resources in education, this and that. Look, criminal justice is no different. I mean, the criminals do get a vote, and you know the 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 habitual criminals are not going to cooperate. They will commit their crime. In fact, the more they think they can get away with it, because you're so reluctant to lock them up, and you give them so much time pretrial, you know, so many loopholes to not convict. I know we can get into all that and the ways they get around that, the disclosure laws. We'll have to have you back. I know you got to run. Thanks so much for joining us. As always, great insights. You could catch. Uh, Raphael's work at City Journal and anywhere else people could follow you on Twitter, Facebook. Yep, Twitter at Rafa underscore Mangual, M A N G U A O, city journal.org, Manhattan Institute.org. Um, the Manhattan Institute actually just launched a new initiative on policing and public safety. Um, we're going to be launching that with the inaugural George L. Kelling lecture on Monday, October 5th, featuring uh, former NYPD Commissioner Bill Patton. Uh, so definitely catch that. It'll mm. be streamed live um, at 1 p.m. You can register on the Manhattan Institute's website. Um, it's going to be a really, really fantastic month for, for MI. That, that, that's great. That's great that we, we need people giving the intellectual firepower of the side of law enforcement, the side of public safety. Thanks so much for your work and keep us posted. Thank you. And there you have it, folks. Always a very interesting and engaging, thoughtful discussion from uh, my good friend Rafa there, Rafael Manuel. Um, Look, I mean, I I didn't even mean to get into this and present it this way, but I do think it's a great analogy and a powerful juxtaposition. That crime, you know, when we're always looking, we're pulling our hair out. I want to save lives with public policy. I want to set rules that I think are going to Make me feel good and save lives. Dude, we gotta, there's a terrible thing going on. We have to do something. Crime is the biggest example of when that mentality is appropriate because it truly is preventable. With proper incapacitation and deterrent, you deter the known criminals, and the known criminals are the ones that commit the overwhelming majority of crime. It's kind of similar to our ability to quarantine Ebola. But when you're talking about a common respiratory virus that winds up spreading like the flu and like a cold, there is nothing you can do to stop it and save lives. You can only manipulate it in a way that you will cause more death, both from the virus and certainly from the collateral damage. That is the lesson. The fact that the president himself got it despite all the precautions demonstrates the point. I can't tell you how many people I know that now have it with the recent percolation 
and they do all the things and they barely go anywhere and they wear a mask everywhere. Masks don't help, obviously. We knew that. We certainly know that now. We plan and God laughs. He has a plan here. It's not our plan. If you're worried about sick people, which there are, there are going to be people like that. It's not a rhinovirus cold. It's a coronavirus cold. And they've been percolating forever. We get them every year. Kids really get them very often. They're a part of life. We never cared about it. But there is a potential for them to kill vulnerable people. And technically, there are colds. So remember, a cold is a cold until, you know, it's not for some people and it turns into pneumonia. We never shut down our lives and we never had the hubris to think we could prevent that. That is really the crux of good public policy. Understanding what is in your power to do in terms of public policy and what is totally out of your hands. Crime is a man-made problem that is prone to a positive response from a man-made solution. Respiratory viruses, on the other hand, are things that have never been in our control. They come directly from God. And if we want to end the virus, the way to do that is by ending our fear and by appealing to God himself and doing things that make us worthy of his grace. Wearing a mask ain't going to cut it. Folks, we had a great productive week as always. Really looking forward to seeing you same time, same place Monday. Have a terrific weekend. Stay safe and stay armed.